Good day to you, Kenan family. This is Johan Portrait, and today we are going to discuss John chapter 12. I do apologize for this one going out a bit later, uh, and it's for good reason. I spent considerable time just with the Lord in this chapter and also reading it through various translations. And the reason why chapter 12 is such an important chapter is because it's the last of Jesus' actual teachings and ministry to the crowds and to the people. And obviously also his confrontation with the Pharisees. But from 13 onwards through to chapter 17, it's where Jesus is now training, teaching, and developing the ministry of his disciples, where he's personally building into them. So in John chapter 12, this is not going to be like a free-flowing sermon. I'm going to have to serve a buffet from chapter 12. So <laughs> what I'm basically going to do is I'm inviting you to the buffet, and I'm going to serve you really with um, with a, a, an hors d'oeuvre. Then I'm going to serve the main course, which is going to be the middle of the chapter where I want to deal with some erroneous teachings that's going around and has been going around, and how that links up with the book of Revelation. And then I'm going to serve you dessert. Then you're going to have some uh, cheese and crackers, and we're going to have some coffee and tea afterwards. So when you look at the, the Gospel of John, um, we're going to take it from verse 1, and we're going to catch the glimpse of what is happening here. It says, six days after the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. Obviously, Martha served. That's who she was. That was a ministry gift. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. That must have been awesome to have Lazarus, whom he just raised from the dead, sit and have a meal with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with the hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. I want us to see something here. When she washed Jesus' feet, and she put this very expensive oil of spikenard on his feet, uh, and she wiped it with her hair. Now this, this oil, we are told, this perfume was imported from India, and it was about a year's wages worth of perfume. Now, I don't know what your most expensive cologne or perfume is, but if you take the average salary and you times that by 12, this is what this cost. So this was extremely expensive. We know the story. Judas is upset, and uh, he kind of um, comes into the situation. He said it should have been sold and the money given to the poor, and his motives were impure. And Jesus makes a statement. He says, but she kept this specifically for me. Now, the fragrance that was on Jesus when she wiped his feet with her hair, the fragrance also came onto her. And I want you to see this. The fragrance that was on Jesus came upon her. So you can imagine wherever she moved in that room now that she smelt like Jesus. And I can see and I believe that you know where I'm going with this. The Bible says in the book of Corinthians that we are the fragrance of Christ in every place. So the fragrance of Jesus is on us. So when we go into a place where there's the, the dark smell of sin, when we bring in the fragrance of Christ, it dissipates the stench of sin and darkness. Hallelujah. There's a sermon just there. But I want to leave you with that thought, and I know you will contemplate that for some time, even after this message is finished. Then in verse 9, then a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but they might also that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. I don't know about you, but I would have been in that crowd as well. I would have wanted to see Lazarus. And the chief 
priests to counsel that they might also put Lazarus to death. The, the Greek text is actually very strong. It says they wanted to also assassinate Lazarus. I mean, how's that? The guy is just raised to new life. He's got a new lease on life, so to speak, and they want to take him out. Why? Because their religion and their system is being challenged. And it says it's because of Lazarus that many of them left Judaism and they started to believe in Jesus. It says in verse 12, the next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. And they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Very important, why palm branches? I'm just going to give you a quick heads up. Palm branches actually signified and it symbolized permanence and strength. So there's significance in everything that happened um, in the Gospels. So when they waved the palm branches, they were actually saying permanence and strength. Permanence and strength because they, they wanted Jesus and they saw Jesus as their permanent strength within their midst. Oh, wow. Awesome. And I want to ask you, are you seeing Jesus as your permanent strength in your midst? no matter what you are busy going through. And then when they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna means save now, we pray. Or then more specifically, save us now, we pray. And when, when they shouted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, you can go read Psalms 118, it's really taken from there. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. It's actually thanksgiving. It's a thanksgiving prayer or, the, or a thanksgiving shout or declaration for deliverance from an enemy. So they were trusting that Jesus would be their permanent strength and he would be their deliverance from their enemies. <sighs> Guys, I wish I had the time to go into all of this. But what you can see here is when they wave those palm branches, they had already made a declaration. They've already moved across from religion into relationship, trusting that Jesus would be their permanent savior. Hallelujah. Now, down to verse 19. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see, you are now accomplishing nothing. The whole world has now gone after him. I love what another translation says. It says, we've lost. <laughs> Religion had lost. And they said the whole world has gone after him. Obviously, that's an exaggeration. It's like we would say today. Yeah, like the whole world now sees what you've done or whatever the case may be. We use that term still today. But they were absolutely devastated because of the fact that their whole system was now in jeopardy. Verse 21 then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. These were Greeks that now came across, or then proselytes, and they wanted to see Jesus. Everything in the Word of God has significance. Let me explain. Here in chapter 12, the Greeks come and they find Philip. Why specifically Philip? Why not why not one of the other disciples? Why not Peter or, or, or Judas or Andrew or, um, or Matthew, one of the others? But they find Philip and they say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Just in that, there's an expression for a sermon. But in chapter 14, do you remember who was the disciple when Jesus kept talking about his father? We're going to get to chapter 14 still. When Jesus kept talking about his father, Philip was the one 
who said, but you talk, and I'm paraphrasing, you're talking about your father all the time. Why don't you show us the father? Here the Greeks are saying to Philip, show us Jesus. The same Philip says two chapters later, Jesus, show us the father. And you remember his response. He looked at Philip and said, Philip, how long have I been with you? And don't you know yet that once you've laid eyes on me, you've laid eyes on the Father. In verse 23, Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. It never becomes more is what the Amplified says. But if it dies, it produces much grain. And I want you to think where you come in right here in verse 24. You see, when Jesus was planted in the earth, when Jesus died for our sins, he was the kernel or then the seed that was placed in the, placed in the soil. And we are the, we are the first fruits. We are the, the fruit of that which came from that first seed that was sown. You are, <laughs> you, you are the harvest. I am the harvest of the life of Jesus. He who loves his life, it says in verse 25, will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. I want to say, are you serving Jesus? The father will honor you. Verse 27, the entire scene now changes. Jesus now says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But it's for this purpose that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Or then honor your name is what it says in the original. Honor your name. Glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, but it was an angel that had spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now, scholars differ on this particular verse where it says that an angel had spoken to him and others say that it had thundered. Some say that the words that the father spoke were coherent. Others say it was incoherent, that they didn't really recognize it. It doesn't really matter whether they heard the actual words or not. The point is, the Father thundered from heaven, where he said that he has been glorified, and he will glorify his name again, through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's the context of the scripture. My first professor taught us that a text without a context is but a pretext. So let's look at the text of what Jesus is saying. Therefore, the people who stood by said that, that it had thundered. In verse 30, after those others have said, now it was an angel, Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but because of you and for your sake. Verse 31 now is what I really want to get to in the study. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. The original text says, and the Amplified says it as well, the evil genius or the prince of this world will be cast out. The Greek word there is expelled. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people 
to myself. The original text does not have the word people in it. You'll see it's in italics in your Bible as well. But basically, in essence, what it is saying that Jews and Gentiles will now be will now be brought to Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection. What I want to focus on today, and what I want to make very clear to all of our understanding, is verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Why am I focusing on that verse? Because of the fact that so many people, and I hear so many people teach it, so many people preach it, and, and I want to I bring in an angle on that today. Where so many Christian, Christians believe that Satan still has the authority, the right, and the power to accuse them before the throne of God for their sins and their mess-ups and their faults and failures. And the verse that they refer to is in Revelation chapter 12, and it's from verse 10, and I want to read this. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has but a short time. So many Christians have quoted this verse and says, but we must remember that Satan accuses us before God day and night. And they refer to this verse. And I want to read it again, but I want to, I want to really pause a bit for you to think about what this verse is saying. Let's look clearly at the text. It says, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come. When did that come? Is that future or has it already happened? Now with that in mind, I want to take you back to John chapter 12, where Jesus says in verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. When was he cast out? He was cast out of the heavens right in the beginning when he rebelled against God. But he still had access. He could still accuse. If you read it in Job chapter 1 from verse 9 onwards, you will see that he still had the place where he could come and accuse us before God until the death and the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. After that, the devil had no more place and he had no access to that place. Listen to what it says. For the accuser of our brethren, it doesn't say you and me. It says our brethren. This is talking about the Jews. It's not talking about you. It's not talking about me. Because we've accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. I'm going to prove it to you just now. It says, and he accused them before our God day and night. I want to ask you, if, if people are teaching that he can go into heaven and accuse you before God and before the throne of God. I want to ask you, in heaven, before the throne of God, do we have day and night in heaven? Exactly. There's no day or night there. I mean, there's not a time that um, the sun comes up and the sun comes down in heaven. There's no such thing. Because 
heaven is filled with permanent light. It's the light of God, the Bible teaches it in Revelation, that fills the place consistently and constantly. How can the evil genius think with me today, folks? And I'm getting passionate about this. How can the evil genius or the evil prince of this world with his darkness and his sin and all that is within him stand in the presence of God? It's not possible for him with all that he is to now appear before God. It cannot happen. But listen, let's just oblige those who teach this just for a moment. And let's just say that he can do that. Then I'm going to take you to Colossians chapter 2. And I want you to listen very, very carefully to this. Verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead and you and I'm talking to you right now who are listening to this and I'm listening to the sound of my own voice and I'm saying for me you are put hitter I am dead in my trespasses that's what it says there being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he, Jesus, has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to his cross. Verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it hallelujah <laughs> what is what a portion of scripture listen the handwriting of ordinances of accusations that were made against me Jesus took all of that, the entire list, the whole record of all my sins. Jesus took it himself and he nailed it to his cross. And when the blood flowed over that list, it cleared it once and for all. So don't you think that the devil has better things to do? Can you imagine if he has to come before God and when you and I miss it, when we sin, when we fall, when we fail, when we mess up, and that he takes that thing now, that sin, and he comes and he accuses you before God. Listen to me carefully now. If that is the case, and every time God has to pull the file out of the cabinet to show him that the blood of Jesus has washed my sins away, past, present, and future, and I'm standing holding without blame before God in love elect as the elect of God, and every time my file gets pulled and it get, gets shown to him and there's nothing in it because it's been cleared that I'm standing before God without sin. Don't you think that he's going to get tired of accusing the Christians? So that scripture does not refer to us. It refers to the end times. It refers to a time where the, the Jews are accused. He's not accusing you and me. And when we look at this and we see the price that Jesus paid, it's the ultimate price. By the way, God can never condemn you for what he's redeemed you from. There's therefore now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. That's in Romans 8 verse 1 and 2. You can go read it again. So I 
am free from sin. You are free from sin. Jesus delivered us. If we could be accused of our sin again, listen, the Bible says that the payment for sin or the wages of sin is what? Death. Therefore, a blood sacrifice had to pay for it. And Jesus' blood did. So if we can still be accused of our sins and there's a guilty verdict, Jesus died in vain. Then the father will have to turn to his son who was seated at his right hand and say to him, son, I'm so sorry, but you didn't finish the job. You've got to go back and do it again. Jesus said on that cross, it is finished. In Afrikaans, we say, dit is volbring, dit is voltooi, dis klaar, dis verby. Jesus paid for your sins once and for all. So I wanted to take the time today just to go through that with us. And the last verse of John 12, Jesus makes this statement. In a sense, his last public declaration to the crowds and to the Pharisees. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. And I want to say to you today, and this is where I dish up the, the coffee and tea now. We're at the end of our meal. Just as the Father has called you, just as the Father has called me, and the words that he puts in our mouths, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, those are the words that we should speak. So, Father, I thank you today in the mighty name of Jesus. I thank you for your word, that your word is life. Thank you that your word is liberty. Thank you that your word has set us free. Thank you that we've been crucified with Christ. Your word says it. Nevertheless, we live yet not us, but Christ lives in us. And the life we now live, we live by the faith of the Son of God. That's what the original text says. We live by the, the faith of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. I pray for every person who is listening to this right now, that they will from today onwards not believe the lie that the devil can accuse them before the Father. We've been set free from sin. We've been set free by the blood of Jesus. The Father made a covenant with His Son. We are the recipients. We are the beneficiaries of the entire estate. It belongs to us. We have been bought at a price and we are free, free forever. And we thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.